You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name, holding space for some of the most difficult yet crucial questions of our uncertain times is my game. As returning listeners will know, the degrowth movement is a broad church and thus I try to cover as wide a net as possible on PGAP. Hence, we have episodes that focus on economics, others on housing, episodes on permaculture, episodes on population, and finally, episodes on behaviour change and even spirituality. The human mind seems geared towards chunking and compartmentalising things. It is, after all, how we make practical sense of existence that we know deep down is infinitely complex, infinitely integrated and infinitely enormous. Thus, on PGAP, I feel a sense of wearing a very different hat when hosting interviews on economics or permaculture than I do on hosting an episode on behaviour change or spirituality. They often feel like completely different realms with national borders drawn around them and never the two shall meet. This not only happens to me on PGAP but used to affect my social landscape when I lived in Melbourne big time. When you live in a megalopolis such as Melbourne, the population is so large that it is easy for one's network of friends to be cleaved into subcultures. I had my anarchist activist group, my vegan group, and what I affectionately called my namaste crowd. It was easy to feel like stepping into different worlds, almost different realities. I remember once trying to combine the two, where one of my namaste friends tried living in my anarchist activist rental house. The net result was very interesting and fiery, not unlike combining sodium and chlorine. In moving to rural Western Australia, there's not quite enough of us to form social cliques, and so it feels a little bit more mushed up, just like the reality of existence, really. (laughs) In the last episode of PGAP, my guest Paul Collins, an ex-Catholic priest, called for an ecocentric spiritual revolution. He appealed to the false dichotomy of religion and science as social constructs, and in fact both are needed if we are to work in harmony with nature and not in opposition. This discussion has proved to be a good segue into the themes of this episode. My two guests today are Dan and Johanna McTiernan, wife and husband co-founders of Earthbound. Dan is a transpersonal psychology coach and Johanna is a nature connection facilitator. Both are subtle energy meditation teachers. Now before this starts sounding a little too Byron Bay, both Dan and Johanna have had a long and illustrious history in the permaculture movement and currently live, work and are nourished by their six acre homestead in Fidland, which they operate on permaculture principles. I was intrigued by this combination of permaculture and spiritual practice or, as both these terms have loading attached to them, a combination of the practical and philosophical. Certainly, Finland is the most further north that PGAP has ever travelled virtually to. So join me in uncharted territory, in all senses of the word, as we talk to Johanna and Dan McTiernan from Earthbound.
Johanna and Dan, welcome to PGAP. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Thank yeah, it's you, nice, yeah. nice to be talking to you. Firstly, tell us a little a bit about yourselves and the key passions that drive you both. We're both permaculture practitioners. We've been involved in the movement for 15 years or so, and um, I'm a transpersonal psychology coach as well, and we're both very interested in meditation. And I think that, you know, you talk about kind of passion that's been driving me. Really, I think it's kind of subconsciously and, and obviously much more consciously in the last decade or so. It's trying to work out what's what's meaningful, how to live in this seemingly crazy world we find ourselves in. And, you know, I grew up in a very typical, well, somewhat typical and somewhat atypical, you know, microwave, air-conditioned, car-driven, you know, not very naturally in touch, moved around a lot, and the parent of definitely of seekers um my mother was kind of very into the new age movement and uh like so i was taught transcendental meditation taken to classes when i was five already so i've kind of had an involvement with a kind of contemplative side of life from a very early age and i I kind of just always felt very early on that like i just didn't understand why things were the way they were it just seemed crazy to me to be kind of going down that you know career treadmill education spits you out into a job spits you out into you know being a good a good citizen um I have actively or oscillated between being quite good at playing that role but to my own detriment you know a a lot of kind of mental health problems in my early adulthood you know I was playing the the matrix game but with a very heavy toll but all the time, I kind of, this pull towards something more meaningful, I kept asking myself, well, what, what am I doing? You know, why am I here? What am I, there's got to be something more. Um, and so kind of dipped in and out a lot of, of meditation, got very into kind of integral movement in the early 2000s and, um, you know, have gone backwards and forwards with a kind of spiritual practice, um, a lot of on-off and then discovered permaculture really 15 years ago and that that's a kind of whole different aspect to life you know really started to engage with um with ecology and myself as a natural being and that's been a long process which we can talk about but that's a kind of potted history of where where I'm up to now I guess potted history is what we want Johanna how about you similar in many ways in that I think the driving driving force is sort of looking for deeper meaning and like what what's life about? Why are we here? That kind of question in the background. I grew up in rural Finland, very much sort of close to nature. Nature's really important to Finnish people, but on a sort of quite sort of rational and practical level. Um, and And the way I was brought up was practical and rational even though i had this this kind of desire to dig up the the meaning of life i set off to explore that through sort of the the usual kind of like career path and trying to prove myself and i studied to to be a journalist and a and a filmmaker and and thought i would be exploring the deep meanings of of life through that and hit my head against the wall when I realised that it felt very sort of ego-driven uh, and, and very superficial. But being conditioned in that sort of need for approval, really, I kept 
pursuing that and hitting my head against the wall until things like anxiety and depression kind of forced me to to sort of stop and and look for something else and I kind of came to sort of uh, the kind of like at the turning point the question that's kind of stayed with me is this really all there is is my kind of is my life's purpose really just to be a consumer and at that point um, we started discovering permaculture which then opened up a way of of starting to explore a way out of of (laughs) just being a consumer excellent thank you so much now I'm not sure if this is a word of warning (laughs) but I'm going to say questions by saying what do you think Um, And just so you know, that's open the floor to anyone to answer the question. Um, And so I'd rather say that because the other option is saying, use guys, Um, and that's a little bit too Australian. So you were both deeply involved in the permaculture movement, which has been quite a frequent topic of interest on PGAP. This is the first interview, perhaps not surprisingly, that I've had with people living in Finland. So um, well done for being the first in that respect. Uh, On a food growing property there. And I'm aware, Dan, that you are involved with Permaculture UK. So to anyone to come into the floor, what does permaculture mean to you? And how are permaculture principles expressed on your property and day-to-day lives? And uh, what grows well in Finland as well? (laughs) If I may uh, just um, sort of reverse a tiny little bit, because this is not the first uh, food growing property that that we're on. And obviously our journey with permaculture started 15 years ago. And to understand what it means to us now, um, I think it's useful just to go back a little bit. Um, on the whole, I think, sort of looking back at the 15 years, I think on the whole, permaculture gives us um, a kind of a map or a manual as to how life works or, or like a sort of a true map of what reality really is or, or how nature works. Um, as opposed to that map that we learned as children or as people growing up, um, the sort of the matrix map, the uh, the rules of the industrial growth society. But it's taken it's taken different forms throughout the the fifteen years. And to start with, um, we we started kind of like answering with permaculture that question of like, are we really just consumers? And that's like a really really narrow kind of point of view to look through. So the way we started opening that up was that we became secondary producers and and started kind of empowering ourselves through that. And um, and we set up a, an artisan bakery in the UK um, and designed it sort of on, on permaculture principles. And we looked at the model of CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and uh, and followed that model and took useful things from that and set up the bakery on that on that uh, basis, and started started opening that up and and it was really empowering. Even though we were you know we were only making bread, we weren't farming the the grain or anything. But um, but we felt as though we had taken life more into our hands, and we were making something with it and. 
And at the same time, we were taking part in in sort of the politics of where food should come from and how it should be made. And it was, um, it's still ongoing, actually, the bakery. And we set it up as a cooperative. It was super fruitful. You know, at work, our life was amazing. And uh, and we felt it was really fulfilling and, and everything. But zone one, back at home, we were still totally disconnected. I certainly felt, particularly as then we had a, our first child, that being at home was sort of this, this vacuum of, sort of where I was banging my head against the, the empty walls um, because it was so disconnected. And, and, you know, we still went to the supermarket and our needs were met through money. You know, we just exchanged money for, for everything that came in and we had no, no idea where it came from. So we felt like we wanted to cut the cord uh, with the matrix. And so we moved, we made a big leap of moving onto the land um, in Spain. We bought some, a piece of land, moved into a yurt. We kind of forced ourselves into a state of sort of voluntary simplicity where we pared back our life. Like, okay, where we could see, where we could lay out the energy flows in and out. So it wasn't this mystery anymore where, you know, when you turn the tap or where you um, press a button or you go and exchange goods for, you know, we, we started meeting our needs on a, on a more profound level, which again was, was a deeper, it was an expansion of, from the point of view of, of being a consumer. And we became primary producers. We produced olives and almonds, um, made olive oil and, and sold that. But we noticed again, like zone one and zone zero got ignored because we were so busy trying to earn a living by farming the olives and doing everything by hand. That was, of course, <laughs> kind of a challenge. So we decided that we needed to actually put zone one and zone zero first even though we were you know we were growing we had we were gardening vegetables for ourselves and we had animals on the land as part of the the system but it still it came secondary to earning money um and we decided we needed to put those needs first then for various reasons we ended up moving to to finland and continued to meet our needs and we were really focused on self-sufficiency and producing our own food and meeting our own needs um, as much as possible. So we came in and after a period of, of kind of observation, we put down the, we laid the the sort of the permacultural systems, you know, we dug swales and we made ponds and prepared gardens and orchards and, and um, animal systems and so on. And we were deeper in this, we were deeper in the land than we had ever been. But I still felt homeless. I'd come back home pretty much to where I'd come from. I was, you know, I had my fingers in the soil and, and you know, we were on this, this piece of land, but I still felt disconnected. And Dan fell ill with, um, with chronic fatigue. That was a point where we realised that we have got to kind of like open, open up deeper that we're, we're functioning from our sort of matrix mindset and from our conditioning and that we can only get so far with it and that we need to open up new levels. And so now 
to actually come back to your <laughs> initial question of how permaculture is or what it means on this piece of land is actually that it's it's kind of a a deep listening we have dramatically dramatically slowed down in terms of design you know we know that by all by no means this piece of land is is not complete or you know the the sort of permacultural systems that we had designed initially when we first moved here we haven't completed those processes but actually we have just like slowed down to to really observe and to start letting go of control and be just be with this land actually Dan, did you want to add anything to that, like a cherry on the already delicious cake of that answer? Uh, it's really interesting to, you know, when you come into something like permaculture from a very conditioned industrial mindset, then clearly you come to it with the same conditioning you were raised with. And so what's been really interesting to experience over these 15 years, as we shift from a kind of very doing oriented um way of doing permaculture to a, to a much better balance between being and doing by introducing psychology and meditation for example into the process it completely shifts your orientation really which is very interesting and i think you end up at least in my experience having a much richer relationship with the place you live and the people around you um, and with the process of permaculture. It's, it's a very different process when you engage with it fully. Fantastic responses, but uh, we can't just stick on permaculture forever because uh, you two both do a couple of other things as well. Johanna, you are a nature connection facilitator and Dan, you are a transpersonal psychology coach. Um, if I read the website of your Earthbound project correctly, <laughs> where you're both meditation teachers as well. I read a couple of, uh, quite a few articles uh, from the Earthbound site to get myself a sense of where you're both coming from and felt really, really on the same page. Um, for example, to me, you're both guided by spirituality that has reminded me a little bit of deep ecology, non-dualism, Zen philosophies, etc. all the things that I love. Uh, would you like to expand on what is is at core of your spiritual beliefs and your connection with the natural world. Yeah, I think that you could kind of sum it up uh, using the word enlivenment. And that's a term we've, we've, we've been gifted by a um, meditation teacher and a writer called Will Meacham. By that, I mean learning and practicing and rediscovering what it feels like to be alive and through that to have a fully embodied fully realized experience that as an expression of life you are also part of the whole of life so you can kind of forget notions of enlightenment and the this kind of you know long path of potentially unattainable spiritual activity and uh, peak states and obviously they're part of the process but the the real shift for us has been from a from this kind of reductive progressive path 
of meditation, which is about finding out what you're not. So I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my ego. I'm maybe not even my body. I'm no thing. Which its ultimate end point is to find you are everything and no thing simultaneously. But actually from a Western psychological point of view, I think that's really unhelpful because we're already not enough of everything. You know, we're not rich enough. We're not handsome enough. We're not fit enough. We're not, you know, we don't have a big enough house. We don't, you know, there's a lot of things we are not. And so... We're not non-dual enough. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah, exactly. You are not spiritual enough, not non-dual enough, exactly. So this is the opposite of that. By enlivenment, it's about discovering on more and more levels what you are and finding that what you are is more than you think you are. And that is profoundly nourishing psychologically, but it's also profoundly practical. By discovering I am my body and actually to be at home in my body feels great and that I can actually feel the flow of life within my body. And so the particular type of meditation that we've learned and learned to teach is called um, subtle energy meditation Um, and the basis of that is to begin to feel the internal flow of life within you as a vehicle to feeling your connection to all life and to to the universe essentially so by discovering i am this and more you know i have thoughts but i'm more than my thoughts i have emotions and i can feel those emotions but i'm more than those i have internal sensations and they're important carriers of messages, but I'm also more than that. I am alive, but I'm also part of the whole of life. And so when you start to actually feel like that, rather than just, you know, have an intellectual, conceptual conversation about it, and it is a practice to learn to start to feel that, to tune in, then your behaviour changes naturally. And so our kind of spiritual practice is really firmly rooted in, you know, practical doing. But it's doing from being and realising that what you are is much more than this narrow band of thinking. Let's bring those both together, um, the permaculture and the spirituality and the enlivenment, um, all together in the ferment crop. <laughs> so on PGAP, we've interviewed both permaculturists and spiritual practitioners. And while few of our guests have ever been mutually exclusive when it comes to systemic change, practical lifestyle change and consciousness shifting, this is the first time I think where the permaculture and spiritual components sit strongly side by side in a kind of even spread, which I'm really excited about actually. Especially because most modern agriculture can be criticised for being too reductionist. And sometimes even the permaculturists have been perceived as being too reductionist in their regards to their resource use of other species, for example, or following certain outcome approaches to their gardening rather than working as part of the land. So I wonder how your spiritual beliefs have informed the way that you engage with permaculture, both theoretically and even practically on your land. In terms of kind of opening up, it's allowed us to start letting go of the conditioning. You know, easily with, um, and, and I totally sign this, I have done this, it's you come into permaculture and you feel that you 
need to act quickly. I know that part of permaculture is, is a sort of, there's a rule that you have to observe. And, uh, but that observing quite often still isn't really enough. You know, how, how long have we got? You know, and we all, we're all driven by this urgency that we quickly, we have to change things because it's all going to shit and we, we have to put in measures. So there's a sort of that drive to make change, um, but also the kind of drive to be in control, which is deeply conditioned in us. And the, and the need to know the answers, to be someone who knows the answers. And also, I guess, sort of in terms of the community, in terms of the permaculture community, you feel like, okay, I have to have this and this and this thing pla- in place so that I feel I am a true permaculturist and, and that I'm part of the community. And so you, you know, rush off to design things and to, to put in, things into place. And so... Obviously, we kind of found, we found edges of that functioning from our rational mind and and sitting behind our our eyes and in our thinking mind. We could only go so far. You can have an amazing permaculture project, but you can have psychological issues. You can be, you know, you can have an addiction or you can have spiritual problems and feel disconnected and purposeless meaning you know meaningless even though you might think that being on the land and and working with nature would be the most meaningful and purposeful thing ever but we as humans we are physical intellectual psychological and spiritual beings if we're not engaging with the wholeness of that we're not engaging with the wholeness of of life and we're not actually communicating with life on its terms or or in its language you know life does humans do an awful lot more of strategizing than than nature does the shift can be quite subtle it's kind of like both letting go and sitting back into life into trusting that we are held by life and that it knows better you know we are a meaningful part of that but we are not in control of of how it unfolds and so on a really practical level for example that's meant that we have moved to to use more of the wild resources on on the land um that we for example have included a lot of wild foods in our diet that we didn't before and have dropped some things of our things that we were growing because we've we've started using the the kind of the natural things that the land provides. And you could kind of see that as a shift from, you know, originally going from the, you know being kind of full on consumers to being full on producers to now this kind of third phase of well, I don't know you could call it something like co creation or something. You know, it's more of a participatory relationship. So it's not all about you affecting your will upon the world there's still some of that obviously but it's about that finding your place and I guess maybe it's a kind of form of humility or absolutely a a humility and and sort of the way some indigenous peoples or people who live in in kind of like deep and immediate relationship with um, with the natural surroundings they observe and and they are 
um, with it in a different way, you know, sort of observing not just with your senses and your, your thinking mind, but observing with your heart and with your gut. And so when you're on the land and you're asking questions like, what should we do here? Um, that you don't just apply the strategic mind, but that you kind of, you're, you're applying the whole of your bandwidth, asking those questions, engaging your heart and your gut and slowing down enough to hear the answers. Yeah, of course, and and obviously that is a is is a practice and a deepening practice and an ongoing lifelong practice. But but it's a different way of being and and having a dialogue with with the land. Excellent. So I think we've uh, <laughs> done executive summary on the permaculture and the spirituality and both together. Now, um, I'd love to hear these ideas of answering some of the big existential questions that uh, PGAP always posits. Uh, for example, much of the focus on this podcast is dismantling the persisting GDP economic growth model on the premise that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Um, surprise, surprise, that's still a shock to so many of us. Many guests have presented amazing alternatives to the existing neoliberal model that is damaging the planet so fundamentally. I suspect, however, that our economic activity stems from a collective narrative informed by our presuppositions on our relationship with the world around us. Indeed, can we change a system without changing ourselves? And is spiritual revival a necessary prerequisite for system change? There we go, an easy question. Yeah, just a small topic to address. Okay. Barely anything, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, we do need a shift and it needs to be a really deep shift. The word spiritual is fairly loaded and I think you could just call it a shift back to our true nature and what it means to be fully human. That Einstein quote is often bandied around, you know, we can't find the solutions to the problems with the same thinking that brought about the problem in the first place. And I think actually there's, there's a deeper, wider issue than that. We need to refine the balance between being and thinking. We need to stop assuming that we are purely thinking reductive beings you know the a spiritual element of that is is kind of summed up for me in terms of sanctity if you want to use a religious term spiritual term sacredness that we've kind of desecrated where we live and how we live uh, and yet there are no there is nothing unsacred you know everything is essentially sacred it's just we are functioning as if it isn't we've forgotten that so on a purely practical term, my personal belief and my personal experience, having worked in the ecological movement, you know, I worked for the national charity, uh, you know, the Permaculture Association in, in Britain, and I've been involved in food movements. And you see the same patterns over and over again in terms of the limits of human conditioning being played out on a global scale. You know, these... Patterns of fear and control, this judgment of self, judgment of others, and essentially what it boils down to is feeling separate. You know, we have a lived experience of feeling atomized. We feel internally fragmented 
I feel separate from you. We feel separate from that other group. This country feels separate from this other country. The ecological campaigners feel separate from oil producers. Humanity feels separate from the rest of life. That's demonstrably false on every level you want to investigate it, whether it be a kind of physical, subatomic level or, um, you know, relational level, spiritual level. You know, we talk a good talk in permaculture about, you know, everything's connected, the web of life. Permaculture's design is about relationships. But how many of us actually feel like we are part of the web of life on a day-to-day basis? And if you don't feel like you're part of life, if you don't have an internal felt sense that I am life, then of course you feel other than life. And so that leads to either this kind of vacuum that we experience so much globally, or you know, kind of the meaning crisis that with all its spin-off issues, you know, addiction, suicide, depression, anxiety, or, you know, the other side of that coin is it's very easy when you feel separate to be numb to what's occurring. So that's how you get the behavior that chops the top off mountains and does, you know, degrades rivers and destroys rainforests. Because it's not us. We don't feel that that's part of us. So for me, the practical, and it is, again, I keep coming back to this idea, this is a pragmatic approach. This is not some airy-fairy hippie bullshit. This is How do we change the way we function in the world? And we don't do that through focusing purely on behaviour change. We should do this. You know, through, through force of will, we will change the way we act. Because clearly it doesn't work, does it? You know, there's endless evidence to show that, well, behaviour is not changing through that mechanism. And I think that is because we do not feel we are part of the whole. And as soon as we do, you shift very quickly from I should do this because it's good for the planet, which is not part of me, to I am essentially the same as the planet and I'm going to willingly act in my own best interests. That for me is how you change things. And that comes from a combination of tuning in to that feeling of being life doing the psychological work of letting go of the conditioning that that interferes with that and then acting from that in the world on a very sort of practical level it's also to do with the fact that the chains are so long this sort of like when at the beginning i was saying about how you know you're in a house and you have no idea how how much energy you're consuming really or where it's coming from or what it means you know what does it mean if I leave this on or that on or or whatever and so it's kind of like on a practical level you know spiritual practice is is important but also like like actually getting kind of a feel for what my needs actually are what do what do I need and how do I meet those needs? And and so so kind of like we have a our water comes from a well and every year in the autumn in September it runs out. And there is just there's a period depending on how much it's rained, um, it's either a short period or it's a bit longer. 
And there's a there's a kind of like a you know when we know that we're coming to that point, I get anxious. There's a kind of there's a fear of like oh my god the water's going to run out soon, and that, and it's kind of it's irrational because I know that we'll be fine because we can get water from elsewhere and we're privileged <laughs> in that way that there is water and all of that. But it's just that I love going through that anxiety every year um, because I come out at the other end of it and when the rain comes I feel gratitude I feel really grateful and I feel connected I feel like yes I am so dependent on this water coming from the sky and filling my well and I wouldn't have that if I was on the grid and I was being supplied from from wherever those kind of things you know also like shortening the chains of supply and taking the money out you know in between and coming to actual contact with your dependence on the world and other beings and and them functioning optimally. I, just to point out that this is actually like a felt experience and that's what's really important. If it stays on the conceptual, intellectual understanding level, it's just an idea that you can kind of like or dislike or adopt. You need to start learning to feel it deeply in your body we train people and facilitate the process of um like as johanna said kind of opening up that bandwidth from just that narrow kind of feeling of self in the forehead to like feeling your whole body feeling how your body reacts to to lack to gratitude to you know to being in relationship with the world you know i have to say well done both of you for um putting these concepts and big ideas into words when so much of this work is you know exists in the place beyond the labels and concepts and language unfortunately we're on a podcast so it's a little bit tricky to get around that i discovered your great work both you through holistic activism of movement of movements based in Australia, spearheaded by a very good friend of mine, which is all about bringing mindfulness back into activists and whose motto is we're not going to change the world through one set of values. If nothing else, and certainly there's been plenty else, um, holistic activism has taught me much around how to engage in debates. Now, I've written here on the question spirituality, but how can returning to self, I think that's (laughs) better, isn't it, Uh, help us openly debate difficult topics like animal agriculture, population sustainability and vaccinations without descending into an us-versus-them divisions whilst at the same time avoiding spiritual bypassing or feeling above and beyond engagement in important issues? Well, first of all, I just want to kind of echo uh, your words about um, Mark Allen's work and you know holistic activism. I think it's great and really needed. And that idea of really looking at first principles around what it is to be an activism, how, how we engage in activism, how we come to consensus um in conflictual situations is like critical work and how do you avoid burnout as an activist and his process is all around isn't it kind of uh, initially a, a radical acceptance learning to be with what is a shift from narrative from story how you would like things to be how you imagine they should be to just noting what is and then his second process is around um, engaging with personal and collective pain and again, 
for for us that's completely critical in terms of um, allowing the processing of this conditioning to loosen this false uh, delusion of consciousness as Einstein calls it that we are a separate self you know there are levels of trauma but I would say everyone is traumatized you know the act of living in an industrial society is traumatic because you are actively wrenched out of your natural state and that's clearly intergenerational and for some groups within our society that there there are whole heaps of you know trauma on top of that so the acknowledgement and the actual work to process that is really important and then you come to finding points of agreement with people that you would otherwise believe that you are fundamentally opposed to well it's a kind of dual move so it's it's partly like I said, this tuning in to this idea that I'm not this separate self. You know, this person opposite me, I may fundamentally disagree with their actions and perhaps their words, but also fundamentally I am connected to them. I am interdependent with them. And to recognise that there is a shared source to our being, um, and it's a practice, of course. This is not straightforward stuff. And, you know, I get triggered. I, you know, can get angry with people. I have been through periods in my life of being very judgmental of those bastards that are trying to ruin, you know, kill the planet. But it that doesn't solve anything, clearly. And that's what holistic activism points to. So learning to engage in a generative conversation has a couple of different elements to it. And I think what's really crucial, again, is this felt sense. So you're engaging in, borrowing a term from Nicholas Yanni, who's a, who's a transpersonal coach also, and does works with um, CEOs, for example, in big corporations of the kind that we might frown upon, mining corporations, for example. But within that is working with individuals who are learning to reconnect with their true self. And so part of that is a kind of circling backwards into the body process we're always up and out you find when you're lost in thought if you actually pay attention to where you feel you are you either feel in your eyes and your eyes are kind of somehow bulging or there's a kind of amorphous field in front of your body and around your head where you project your consciousness and that part of that is this innate human trait of scanning for danger you know i've got to get you send the scouts out to find out to protect myself but the, the consequence of that actually is that rather than making you safer, it makes you feel unsafe because you're not in your body. You don't feel like you're safely grounded in your body. And so therefore, when you engage in a hot topic with someone, you don't feel safe. So your immediate function is to defend and control, defend and control. And that, of course, descends very quickly into othering and conflict and gets no one anywhere. So this tuning, this circling backwards, so it's an active relaxation, it's a coming down into your base, it's a feeling like you're safe and present in your body. And from there, you can kind of open a field of, a neuroceptive field as it's called. So it's a shared bioemotive field where we can feel each other on a on an emotional, sensational level, as well as just listening and thinking. And when you're in that process... A, you feel safe, so you don't feel threatened in the same way as you would otherwise. And B, you feel some kind of compassion, some kind of connectivity because you're, you've opened this 
bioemotive field to this other person. And we're co-regulatory beings. So even if that other person is still pissed off with you and shouting at you, there is a co-regulatory process there that just by you being fully present rather than this absence out of our body, that will down-regulate that other person's nervous system somewhat, not completely. But you will ratchet down that energy. And then the second part of that, again, which ties into holistic activism, learning the art of a generative conversation. And I've, I've taken a very simple rule from a really good, very powerful thinker, um, I think called Daniel Schmachtenberger, who runs a project called the Consilience Project, who's trying to do this work at a macro scale. So we're very person by person, group by group focused, and he's looking at organisational level. And and he has this rule, rule omega. So it's like, how do you have a generative conversation? Well, rule omega simply states that if you think the other person is an idiot and you think what they're saying is bullshit, your first assumption should not be they are wrong. Your first assumption should be, I don't understand. That's why I think what they're saying is wrong or idiotic. It's your lack of understanding. And so your job as an active listener, an active good faith participant in a conversation which may be highly charged, is to look for signal in the noise. If 98% of what they're saying is bullshit, there'll still be 2% of signal in that noise. And your job is to listen for that and resonate with that and feed that back to them. And their job is to do the same so that you know, block by block, we we whittle away the chaff to mix metaphors, and we get we get to the signal that we can both agree on, and we could be coming from you know, Charles Eisenstein uses a really good example of an NRA hyper conservative hunter and an you know an ultra left wing eco warrior. Well, clearly there's some signal in the fact that they both love being in nature, and it's in both their interests that wildlife exists and actually continues to thrive and multiply we might be doing different things within that zone but you know there's a point of mutuality there and then there's a whole field of noise of opposition which we just need to learn to drop basically but um what if i'm really right and the other person's really wrong and i've got a very borrowed frown <laughs> yeah now it's definitely a practice and i am not claiming that i am um, perfect or great at it but i i do know that i'm different as a result of you know years of this practice and i'm much less reactive and i'm much more able to be multi-perspectival for example which is one of these kind of sense making skills that you know we need to learn to be comfortable with not knowing all the answers and being prepared to being open to lots of different perspectives and being humble enough to go Oh shit, actually you're right, I'm wrong. So it's a practice, but it's a practice based in presencing in your body first and then obviously learning other complementary skills to, to help with that process. Johanna, has this helped you with your debates and arguments over recent years? I don't get into a lot of debates and arguments, I have to say I'm not. Um, who knows, maybe that's Aww. some kind of like... <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I'm protecting myself. Uh, I'll, I'll have to investigate that. I tend to just sort of think that, you know, okay, you think that way, I think this way. I've never felt like an activist in that sense, that I've never felt the urge 
to go and and sort of um, in the sort of traditional activist sense to um, to go protest or these sorts of things. I feel like my activism is in the things that I do in my personal life, and and that's I guess a lot easier because you don't then end up getting in the conflicts. But I know that there are things that need discussing and deciding and sorting out. And uh, and that can be very difficult. I think it's clear to see that, you know, you just look at any language around, and this is true of the permaculture movement completely. You know, you look at like threads within permaculture groups on Facebook. All of the language around othering, those people over there are doing that to me to us to the planet and you know that's clear that we're bringing that same conditioning of separation that that misbelief that we are separate from that other person into all discourse you know something has to change and i know that this process helps it's not you know it's not the only thing that needs to be part of the mix but it's powerful stuff and I think if you can just, even just having that shift, even if it's fairly rational, cognitive behavioural shift of, okay, I'm going to take the first step of asking another question before leaping to judgment. And I'm going to keep asking questions until I feel like it, I fully understand your point of view. And I still might disagree with your point of view. But I'm going to be mature enough to withhold my outrage and my judgment a few more minutes to ask a few more questions and that's a very you know a cognitive behavioral approach but that would make a big difference so then if you can do that with this whole system awareness and presence it becomes a much more powerful tool a much more practical tool uh, if that then sits in in a sort of a view of of the whole of life or you kind of come back to the spirituality that in that you know you you were saying how you circle back and you come back into your body but um we can often when we feel our kind of like limited selves um coming back to our body isn't necessarily going to do the trick or or kind of like make you open up you know the spiritual practice is an important element in that in that you feel that you can let go into that sort of sense of being held by by life so that when you're circling back into your body you're not just kind of like circling it back into your physical limited body but you're kind of like sitting back into into life yeah being held by something bigger than than you are which then connects you and the other person also and that's why it's so important to combine you know this kind of embodied spiritual practice with psychological inquiry psychological work is crucial to this and with some kind of land-based ecologically based relationally based community-based doing in the world so for us it's you know permaculture transpersonal psychology and embodied spirituality are really important to create that kind of spiral of abundance and without one of those pillars like you say spiritual bypassing is really easy it's really easy to leave your body enter spaciousness 
and just forget about it all. It's a process that feels great, but it's a form of escapism, isn't it? It's not reality. So this form of spirituality is much more, you know, there's a kind of transcendental move, which is a kind of, you know, an expanding into the universe. And there's a kind of imminent move, which is a moving into the world from a point of being a spiritual creature, you know, part of life on a fundamental level. And that's really what we're about in that sense. So it really does combine like activism, doing stuff, acting in the world with loosening this multi-generational conditioning that's so sticky with a tuning in to yourself as whole, yourself as interconnected with everything. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I just want to um, put in here with the permaculture movement and the environmental and even the, you know, transpersonal self-work movement is that in the last couple of months, and it almost makes me nauseous to be another person that says, oh, well, COVID's turned everything around, because uh, how many times do we hear that? But it's just, you know, with vaccinations and COVID that it's divided the permaculture community with, you know, David Holmgren and marches and such and that, and, and people, <laughs> you know, the left-right divide is kind of, this has all melted that down a lot, so people don't know where they are in the arbitrary boundaries anymore so in a way it's very confusing and discombobulating but also in another way it's quite exciting it's definitely exciting you know confusing is a good word uh, you, they, there's a kind of term called VUCA I don't know if you've heard of that VUCA I don't know how you pronounce it but it's like it's an acronym for you know volatile uncertain complex ambiguous and that's the reality we live in. It's really hard to make sense because everything's turned upside down. You know, the internet and the breakdown of kind of legacy media, of kind of this straight narrative of this is how life is, has completely disintegrated. And so it's it's essentially almost impossible to know what's true on this kind of relative level. You know, what's true about what governments are telling you about vaccines versus what renegade virologists are telling you and it's impossible essentially i would i would suggest to to have a very clear idea so in the end you join a tribe and you a belief system and that's how it works so part of this process it again comes back to that kind of being multi-perspectival is about being comfortable not knowing no one knows no one knows how to solve the climate crisis no one knows actually how to be a you know a naturalized human no one knows any of these answers admit that and admit it on a kind of full body level and get comfortable in that because trying to know is is a recipe for a mental breakdown essentially because you can't know so being comfortable with uncertainty is a really useful skill you know this is a process that we facilitate this is the kind of work that this helps with being present to what is and what is is i don't know what all the answers are. But I'm okay with that. I'm still prepared to act in what I believe is a generative and hopefully a regenerative manner. Again, that's another point of connectivity. If you can kind of get off your high horse for a second and just admit collectively, we don't know how this works, but again, we're going to try and find the signal in all this noise again. And we're going to do it in, a, in and it's with the 
fullness of our experience rather than just these narratives on tape loop repeat endlessly then we might get somewhere you know we're, we're discussing on a conceptual level and it's more and more fragmented and we just have to kind of like really bring it back down and get to the core and Nicholas Yanni that, that Dan referred to earlier um, he sort of describes this state as being um, you know I am open I'm available and I have no idea what's going to happen next. And that that is actually the point at which anything new can take place. That unless you are not open, available and not knowing what's going to take place next, you're just repeating the old, same old stuff, you know, the, the same old beliefs that you have. So actually, in order for anything, any new idea or any new resolution or any kind of new decision to to arise or new new solution you might think that you have to be in that place yeah those conditions are necessary and and again it comes back to that einstein quote about you know you can't solve the problems with the same thinking well it's not about thinking you know that not knowing is letting go of strategic thinking mind being in charge of everything and we've got this built into our language. We've just forgotten what it means. You know, an idea came to me. It came to me out of nowhere. Well, that is where ideas come from. But only when you open up to that liminality. This last question, I've been umming and ahhing whether to ask it. It's how to keep grounded at a time when, you know, day-to-day life is collapsing as kind of civilization kind of is is unraveling in front of our very eyes i think i've made the mistake of reading a book by yuval harari called sapiens which looks into the history of humanity and um how the sapiens you know killed off the neanderthals and the megafauna and it's hard to it can be sometimes hard to feel connected with nature and the wider world when you feel you're a part of the species that is kind of like almost a great annihilator. And I was going to stop the question there, but I just wanted to make the comment how I really like resonated with the fact that you both said that you had few mental health problems before moving into this space. Um, I've just come from a weekend where it's been literally catastrophes. My weekend has been so bad that even people I haven't known for years have been asking me if it's okay. So it's just like, okay, it must be a pretty rough time then. Um, I was going to say, well, how do I keep myself grounded? Um, but the amazing thing happened the other day. So I went for a swim and I came out of the swim um, and I just for a few minutes just completely let go and this endorphins run without the mind and I just felt great for a couple of minutes so that was nice because it thought well even in the midst of this there is a space where I can still go um so you know our meditations walks in nature and wordless rituals or helpful things that we can still be doing in this time and I'm sorry it was a question that I kind of thought of the minutes, so it's all in pieces, but um, I'm not sure if that can be answered but uh, coherently, but have a go. 
Of course, meditations and walks in nature and ritual, of course, they are all absolutely helpful. Um, but I think, like you say, with your swimming experience, they often remain um, momentary. You know, you feel like you do something like that and for a moment you feel like, oh, yeah, this is good. And then you contract back into your conditioning, into the sort of the the craziness of of your existence, your daily, you know, busyness and everything. And that gets lost and you feel like you have to do it again. Um, and so rather than um, rather than these kind of individual events like, okay, I'm going to go do, I'm going for my yoga class or then I go to my meditation class. And instead of doing those as sort of separate activities on kind of as an as add-ons onto your already busy life, I think um, what we need to do is to go back to that core. It's, um... And I think, just to jump in there, that the, a lot of those activities are about alleviation of symptoms, aren't they? I want to feel better. I want to feel calmer. I want to be less stressed. And of course, that's really crucial. I think this idea of absence is a kind of ratcheting up of... Um, our autonomic nervous system dysregulation. So, you know, the kind of classic fight, flight, freeze. Um, you know, we're all often stuck in one of those. So there does need to be some just grounding. And that that can be something like yoga or meditation or a walk in nature that does that. We know that settles us. But if we treat them as alleviation of symptoms, like a bottle of wine or uh, antidepressants or, you know, Netflix, then you're not addressing any root issues. You're not, you're not actually going to experience fundamental transformation. You're just going to feel a bit better in all the, the shit of what's going on in the world. And let's face it, the world is pretty terrifying at the moment. Really, what Johanna's saying is like bringing it from... A, bringing it into what your life is rather than stuff you do to feel better. So it's about learning to live from this. And that sounds very grand and, you know, great. It's rooted in practice, rooted in very practical tools of of learning to tune in, learning to actively come into presence, and then learning to sense from there. These are just skills you we've just either never been taught or have forgotten or have underdeveloped abilities at the moment. And we can all train in those skills. But in a healthy human culture, everyone would have these skills already. You would you would be, you know, trained in them from birth by your parents and other carers. But obviously we have to relearn these as 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 adults. So it and and for me it's really about recognizing your true nature and it's it it's much easier than you might think to do that you can be guided quite quickly to tune into something beneath your mind stream beneath all that anxiety that is still is spacious is awake is open and available as johanna said and that feels 
great. So that experience you had coming out of the swimming pool maybe was something similar to that. It's it's a complete letting go for a minute of this tight self. You know, if you think about your small self as a kind of tightly bunched fist and then your actual being as kind of a cupped hand into which your tightly wound fist can first be held and then as it feels safer can kind of gently loosen that tight grip and just relax and when you can relax and trust into that you can function in an emergency and that's what we all need to be people that can function in an emergency because we are undoubtedly living through one this has to be a practice so that instead of this peak state that happens occasionally by accident or when I go off to a retreat or or when I take psychedelics or you know whatever the mechanism is we have to renormalize presence as as what humans are rather than treating it as this peak state we can occasionally touch into if we're lucky and then come back to absence disappear into the fog of our story and of the so-called world so you need to practice this moment by moment so we practice kind of formal sitting meditation this subtle energy meditation but also moment by moment practice that you can do all the time that doesn't require taking time out doesn't you don't have to go get equipment or anything you can do while you're driving the car having a conversation answering telephone writing an email you know and once you practice that enough that it starts to feel normal and you can trust that actually okay this is reliable it's like any relationship you need to develop trust through consistency and it's going to feel really weird at first it feels kind of blissful but it doesn't feel like you because what you think you is is this contracted terrified anxious being but actually this is you this deeper presence and when you can normalize that and trust it over time and it takes time its own time it may take you know years probably maybe your whole life but you can get a taste of it very quickly and then you can function then that anxiety can still be present we're not it is not bypassing anxiety you, you know part of this process also is learning to feel what's going on in your body acknowledge that you're scared acknowledge the anxiety feel it as a physical sensation it might be in your tightness in your chest or not in your stomach or and to allow it but also to recognize that while that's happening, you can also simultaneously be this deep, quiet, still, calm presence. And both are who you are. And it makes life function a lot smoother in my experience, at least. Along the way, you can use your sense of longing as a beacon, as a kind of lighthouse that... Um, I would say that most people, obviously I can't speak for everyone, I can only speak for myself, but I certainly have recognised it for most of my life, that there's a sense of longing, a kind of longing for home, and you can, you can follow that longing. And along the way, you come against your conditioning, against these psychological uh, knots that we have developed over the years um, that we protect ourselves with. But then by feeling through through this practice, you can sort of feel through them and go beyond them. 
and follow the beacon home. Well, I think there's a bit of serendipity here, and in my case, quite a bit of luck, that after the weekend from hell, my first interviews with a transpersonal counsellor and uh, two meditation practitioners. PGAP listeners, this is what my personal counselling sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, come to an end there. But before we say goodbye, if PGAP listeners from Australia or and not Australia, as the case may be, want to follow up on your work, uh, where can they go? Where can they say hi? And are there services available for the international uh, client? <laughs> we teach subtle energy meditation courses, and I also offer one-to-one transpersonal psychology coaching. And um, sometime this year, we'll also be opening up a... Um, a group um, coaching community so a community of practice for this kind of work Um, and you can find details about all of that at our website which is earthbound.fi for Finland Thank you both so much for indulging in some words with me. Uh, very, very great words, <laughs> as um, you've, you've done well with language. Um, and um, amazing work. Um, I encourage everyone to give the site a, a go, and I do a, agree this is what we do need to do if we are to um, shift and not repeat the same mistakes of much of our history. So big blessings and many thanks to you both. Well, many yeah. thanks to you as well. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. And we'd also like to echo that, you know, the kind of work you're doing is is crucial. So it's it's wonderful that we got to have a chat with you. listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Dan and Johanna McTiernan from Earthbound. I don't know about you, but every time I immerse myself in a work of Johanna and Dan, I feel that little bit more relaxed about my place in the cosmos. This was evident during my research of Earthbound website and the blog articles that they've written, and in listening to Dan's recorded meditations. I am on the fence to how much I believe in serendipity. However, the recording of my interview with Johanna and Dan took place a few days after a string of life and climate change induced disasters turned my world temporarily upside down. I almost postponed the interview due to the turmoil, but for some reason I went ahead with it. Everything that Dan and Johanna said during the recording in response to the questions had an immediate grounding and calming effect on me. After I stopped the record button, I told them, uh, sorry, but I wasn't feeling my best. They asked me why, and then I let it rip to these two people I barely even met, or my life problems. Despite this, they really helped me move past the worst of it. So I guess this doubles up as a testimony for the great work done by Earthbound. I would also like to thank Mark Allen from Holistic Activism. Without you, Mark, I wouldn't have known Dan and Johanna and hence this episode wouldn't have been possible. Links to Earthbound in the show notes. But what did you think of this episode and its mixture of permaculture, inner work meditation and natural world reconnection? 
Loved it, hated it, furiously undecided? Make your thoughts and feelings known by contacting us at PGAP, rate and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and sharing the episode and the podcast with your friends, family, and networks. Let us know what guests or topics you would like to hear for future episodes. Postgrowth Australia podcast is made possible with a kind support from Sustainable Population Australia. All views and opinions expressed by our guests, including references to their past and present work, are totally their own and do not necessarily reflect any views or positions held by Postgrowth Australia podcasts. Join us next time for more pithy postgrowth, degrowth and steady state conversations. Until then, folks. Until then.